If you have your Bibles, electronic devices, you can click to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9 with me. Uh, it's kind of interesting where we're landing this weekend um, in this series. And, and with the announcement that I made, I had no way of knowing when we laid out this series that this would be the weekend that we felt it was necessary to make this an announcement to you. Um, and some of it is because of the timelines and some of the other things that we have ahead of us. And so the, the title of this message is just Compassion. For the last several weeks, we've been walking through King David's life. And we've taken some things out of David's life. He's one of my favorite Old Testament characters uh, because he's someone that I think you and I can relate to. And so this weekend, we're looking at just one word as the name of the sermon. It's just compassion. Because you know what? One thing that I'm concerned about, uh, especially in the season in which we, are, which, which we are, it looks like believers, evangelicals, are losing. I mean, it's like we're losing altitude in this whole compassion element in our life. It seems like we're yelling at one another, screaming at one another, judging one another, talking over, talking at one another. And all of a sudden, what's happening is this compassion element, in my estimation, is like losing a little bit of altitude. And so when you look at this, you realize you've got to define out what is compassion because there's a lot of people that talk about this definition of compassion, and they just think it's something emotional. In other words, it's an emotion that you feel. It's, it's a feeling that you have. And so they'll say that someone's compassionate when they see someone hurting and, and they hurt or, or they see someone that's having a tough time and they kind of feel sorry for them or they, they, you know, they watch a Hallmark movie and they cry, so they're compassionate or they watch a, you know, a gecko commercial or whatever and they cry and so all of a sudden they say they're compassionate, but, but really that would be pity and not compassion. When you look at this word compassion, you go all the way back to the Latin, compassion is actually a compound word. And it means this, it means two words put together, to sympathize and to bear. That's what it means to be compassionate. It not only means to sympathize with someone and notice that they're hurting, but it also is, is to bear with them. And, and so we get that definition. We get that definition out of Scripture, right? Where, where Scripture calls us, commands us that we're supposed to bear one another's burdens. How? As if they were our own. As if we were walking through it as well. And so when you look at this word compassion, and you just do a word study in the Greek, in, which, which is the New Testament, you realize that this word compassion always led to action, always led to do something. It always caused an individual to get involved in another individual's life. And so we come to this place. It's like this defining moment in David's life. It's amazing when you look at his integrity. It's amazing when you look at his compassion that he had for this guy called Mephibosheth. Now, Mephibosheth, you may not know his name, but he was like the son of Jonathan. Jonathan and David were best friends. Jonathan and David were like best friends. They were lifelong friends. They were close. Uh, Jonathan, to complicate matters, was the, was the son of King Saul, just a little bit of history. And David would, would, would follow Saul as, as, as king. And so you look at this story and you realize that this story of David's love, David's compassion to this guy, Mephibosheth, um, is a beautiful picture of what compassion really means. Because we live in a world, right? And I think we could all agree with this. We live in a world that sometimes there's not a lot of kindness, there's not a lot of compassion shown. And I think Christians, especially in the time in which we live, we have, listen, the church, we have an opportunity to live in a stark contrast to the world of how to show grace, 
of how to show love, how to show compassion to a world that seems like is having more and more of a difficult time to show love and compassion, some of those things, to where we're learning to care for one another deeply, especially, especially for people in need. And we're going to understand about Mephibosheth and, and his whole history and his whole story. Jesus is the one that, that said this, right? He says, they will know that you are mine. What? If you love one another. If you just have love with one another, you have compassion for one another. So when you see someone in need, how, how do you respond? I mean, honestly, there's two responses we can have, right? We can either turn and walk away, or we can move towards the need. We can move more towards the issue. And so when you look at David's compassion and how compassionate he was to Mephibosheth, it's a good example, I believe, of how God calls us to lead how God calls us to respond to those that are in need and that are hurting. So I have three things, like I always do for you. I have three things, three principles about this issue of compassion. The first one is this. Compassion drives us to keep our commitments. Compassion drives us to keep our commitments. Now, that may catch you off guard, right? Because a lot of times we talk about integrity at that point. Well, integrity is the thing. No, what the Scripture says, what the Scripture talks about, there is something beneath this issue. Compassion is a thing that drives us uh, to keep our commitments. And, and it's, it's one of those things of, of, doing, uh, of doing, doing what you ought, even if it costs you. Doing what you say. Even if it comes at a cost. Look at this. We're just walking through the story. You're going to see how it plays out. So you know I'm not making this stuff up. I mean, it plays out in the story. So 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. So David asks. So, so this, is right after, this is right after he becomes king. Saul is dead. Jonathan is dead. They've been killed in battle. So that, now we pick up the timeline. Okay, 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. So David asks, is there anyone remaining from the family of Saul I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake. Now, here's what David's doing. David's making sure he's keeping all of his promises. David's making sure he's keeping all of his commitments. And he was a good friend of Jonathan. They were best friends. Jonathan's been killed in battle. King Saul has been killed in battle. And so, and so when, when David, when it was when David and Jonathan knew that David would be the next king, that all of a sudden David and Jonathan had this this. This conversation. Because see, here's what typically, typically would happen. When a king died, when a king was killed, and a new king was coming in, the new king that came in killed all of his family, all of his relatives, all of his family. Why? It was to keep them from taking over the throne. It was making sure everybody was loyal to them. And so they would kill all of the family to keep a revolt from happening. So Jonathan knew that David was about ready to become king. So they had on two separate occasions, 1 Samuel chapter 20, 1 Samuel chapter 24, Jonathan and David had these conversations. And Jonathan says, David, I know, I know you're going to become king. And when you become king, would you please not put my children to death? And two times, David made a promise to Jonathan that he would not do that. And again, in 1 Samuel chapter 24, he does it again. See, here's here's just a principle that that I've just thought about a lot and I live by uh, just, just thinking about. The, the, the problem with a promise, the problem with a commitment is the conditions under which the promise is made is very different than the conditions that the promise is kept. Isn't that really true? It's easier to make a promise than to keep a promise. The conditions in which you and I make a commitment, it is way easier to make that commit, commitment and then keep that commitment when 
conditions change, when situations change, when it becomes too difficult, when it becomes too costly, when it becomes too expensive, when it, when it, when it takes too much. In other words, like, like a student who makes a promise to be home before curfew. It's easier to make that promise than to keep it. It's the same as true like when buying a car and making a commitment to make the payments and pay it off and make the payments on time. Or when you start a new job, it's easier to make commitments going into a new job than to keep the commitments throughout the job, especially if it gets difficult or if it gets hard or some of those other things. Marriage, wouldn't you agree about marriage? It is easier to make a commitment in a church in front of a pastor and friends and families when conditions are like perfect and you think you'll never have another problem. This is as tough as it gets. Then all of a sudden there's challenges, right? There's illness, there's sickness, there's cancer, there's loss, there's downturns in an economy, there's difficult work, all of those things. It's, it's easier, I'm just telling you. Or how about this, a, a promise, a commitment to follow God. It's easier sometimes to sit in a worship service where the conditions are like perfect and say, God, I'm going to follow you until Monday through Saturday hit, right? Or Monday through Friday hit for us. Or Sunday through, Sunday through Friday, I'll get it right. Sunday through Friday for us. Look at this, Psalm 14, uh, 15, 4 says, Who despises the one rejected by the Lord, but honors those who fear the Lord, watch this, who keeps his word whatever the cost. Wouldn't you say that's a rare individual? Just going to keep their word, regardless of the cost, regardless how the circumstances or the situations changed in life. And David, here's what David's doing. He's keeping his promise. He's keeping his promise to Jonathan when he promised Jonathan that, you know what, I won't put to death any of the family to prevent a revolt. Now the conditions are totally changed. Here's what's so interesting about this story. Saul's dead. Jonathan's dead, the one that David made the promise to. Everyone's dead. Nobody knows the promise has been made. That was between Jonathan and David. Nobody, when you read the text, you can read the story for yourself, you'll learn. Nobody's even asking, hey, David, what about that promise you made to Jonathan in 1 Samuel 20, 1 Samuel 24, about not putting, nobody's asking. And now David, David knew the promise had been made. And David knew he made the promise. And now he's asking, who can I who can I show kindness to? Compassion leads us to fulfill our commitments. If you tell someone you're going to have lunch with them, have lunch with them. If you tell someone you're going to call them back, call them back. If you tell someone you'll pray for them, just pray for them. Can I tell you this principle is what led Billy Graham into this issue of Whenever someone would ask Billy Graham, hey, would you pray for me? He would never tell anyone, I'll pray. Yeah, I'll pray for you. You know what he did? He'd pray for him right there, right then. Because he said, I never wanted to lie in that. He, he would say the greatest lie in, in the church and greatest lie in evangelicals, I'll pray for you. He said, not because we're evil people, because we're forgetful people. And we, life is busy and we move on. And, he, and so Billy Graham, all of his ministry, if someone said, would you pray for me? He'd do it right there. Didn't matter where it was. He'd stop and pray. So verse 2, as we just walked through this, 2 Samuel chapter 9, he said, there was a servant of Saul's family named Ziba. Uh, they summoned him to David 
And the king said to, you, or to him, are you Ziba? I'm your servant, he replied. So the king asked, is there anyone left of Saul's family? Now you see what David's doing. I'm going to fulfill this commitment that I can show the kindness of God to. And Ziba said to the king, there, well, there's still this guy. There's still Jonathan's son who was injured in both feet. In other words, just, just to bring you up to date on history, when, when, Mephibosheth, when Mephibosheth was five years old is, is when, is when his, his, his father, Jonathan, and grandfather, uh, King Saul, uh, they were killed in battle. And so because they didn't know about the promise, they thought the whole family was going to be killed. So all of a sudden, Mephibosheth's uh, maidservant grabbed him, and they started running out of the palace, and they started running down the steps, and Mephibosheth chipped, tripped and fell. He broke, he broke his legs, and he, 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 he broke his ankles, and he broke his feet. And as a result of that, they, they were never properly reset, and so he's been crippled ever since. And, and so when, when, when Ziba said, oh, he's, he's injured in both of his feet, you know what he was trying to say? Oh, he really doesn't matter. He's crippled. He's injured. But David... David didn't stop at that. And so David do, doesn't ask any questions like, well, well how did that happen? And, and how severe is it? And how severe is he disabled? And what will it cost? And how difficult will it be? David just simply says, where is he? Just where is he? Verse, verse 4. The king asked him, uh, where is he? And Ziba answered the king, you'll find him in Lodabar at the house of my cur, a son of Amel. And so when you look at this, real, you realize that, that Lodabar is not a good place. I mean, Lodabar means desolate. And Mephibosheth and his maidservant had probably been hiding there ever since the fall, worried that they were going to be put to death, worried that they were going to be killed. And we, at this point, we don't know how old Mephibosheth is. We just know the Scripture says that he was old enough now to have a family. And so verse 5, So King David had him brought from the house of Machur, a son of Amel, in, the, in Lodabar. And so, I mean, I don't know if you can picture this, but, but Mephibosheth, he's like in hiding because he's worried he's going to be put to death. He's worried King David's going to put him to death. He doesn't know about the promise. And so one day there's a knock on the door and said, are you Mephibosheth? And he says, I'm Mephibosheth. And he says, well, I represent King David and he has summoned you and he wants you to come to the palace. He wants to see you. And so he didn't know what to expect. Verse 6, and so Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, fell face down, and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth? And he says, I am your servant, he replied. And so Mephibosheth had not been in the temple or the palace since he was five years old. And the last time that he was there, it was when his father was killed, his grandfather was killed. It was when he was crippled for, for life. And probably all of those memories came back to him. And he had to be nervous. He had to be terrified because he didn't know how the king was going to respond. He didn't know how David was going to respond. All he knows is his brother had, had been killed also in, in the battle. Verse 7. So David says, don't be afraid, David said to him, since I have tended to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, I will restore you to all your grandfather Saul's fields, and you will always eat meals at my table. I mean, you talk about grace, and Mephibosheth had to be stunned. He could not probably believe what he was hearing. He thought he was going to the palace to be executed and to be put to death, and now all of a sudden, the king is saying, guess what? You're going to eat at my table. I'm, gonna, I'm like going to take care of you. 
And so when you realize, he's telling him, the state of Saul's, now you're a state. Grace is this issue of giving something to someone who hasn't earned it, who can't repay it. And this is what is a defining moment. Listen, this is a defining moment in David's life. I think there's many indications why the scripture kept saying that David was a man after God's own heart. And I think this is one of them. David was that man that would keep secret commitments. David was that man that if he made a commitment to you, if he made a promise to you, he didn't care if there are witnesses. He didn't care if circumstances and things change. David was this man that, you know what, he was going to keep his commitments. Verse 8, look at this. So Mephibosheth paid homage and said, what is your servant that you have taken interest in a dead dog like me? Now listen, a dead dog was a derogatory term in the Old Testament. It was a severe term. It was like scum of the earth. It was like someone that didn't even matter. So now Mephibosheth is like, I cannot even believe you would even, nobody cares about me. Nobody's ministered to me. Nobody's helped me. Nobody's going out of their way to help me. And I cannot believe, have you ever helped someone that was down and out and they just could not even believe that you even cared about them and showed kindness? This is what's happening here. Just, just a little personal illustration. I saw this play out a few weeks ago. Uh, my office, my church office, I have a window and I overlook, I, I can see Vinewood and, and the Burger King. And so there's this guy coming that obviously had been shopping at Walmart. He's in, I don't know what you call them, those motorized, like, scooters. It's, it's not a wheelchair. Uh, it's a scooter. And, you know, you sit on it, and you have a, okay, so you guys know, that, that's what he has. He has a big orange flag on the back. It's red in color. And so he's coming down the sidewalk, and, and so I, I happen to notice him. He has all of his Walmart bags are, like, hanging everywhere off of the scooter. Cannot cannot believe how much Walmart stuff he has. And so he's, he's coming down the sidewalk, and he gets, he gets to, to Burger King. And at this time, Burger King hadn't trimmed all their bushes, and now they pulled them up, but, but, he, but they hadn't done that yet. And so this, this man had to kind of try to swerve to, to, like, miss the bush. And when he swerved out, his, his two wheels uh, went off the curb, and he literally rolled into the street. And he physically rolled into the street. His scooter was on the side. He rolled, I mean, Walmart stuff like everywhere. And so I was on the phone, and I looked at it and says, I, I go, oh, my gosh. And all of a sudden, it was amazing what happened from that point on. Uh, some cars, you know what, they, they, just, they saw him. They kept coming by, but that's not compassion, right? Uh, they may have felt for him, and they may have hurt from him, and they kept going by. All of a sudden, one man pulled up in a pretty big truck, and he pulled up like this, and another lady coming this way, she put her car like this, and then by that time, people started pulling over, and then I watched this group of people go, and in like a couple of men, it took a couple of men to get a scooter up and back on the sidewalk, and then it took another couple of men to like lift this gentleman up and get him onto the scooter. There are people scooping up groceries and everything like that and then putting them back on his scooter and, you know, they're all hugging and, you know, he was thinking them and then he goes on his way. That's compassion. This, this is what Mephibosheth is having a trouble with. He says, normally when I fall, nobody stops. Normal, normally when I need something, I'm just like the scum of the earth. I'm a, I'm a dead dog to them. And so Mephibosheth is having trouble understanding why, like a king, would even care. And so verse 9, Then the king summoned Saul, Saul's attendant Ziba, and said to him, 
I've given to your master's grandson all that belonged to Saul. That's amazing, and to his family. You, your sons, and your servants are to work the ground for him. You are to bring in the crops so your master's grandson will eat food to eat, um, will have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, is always, this is amazing, always will eat at my table. You know who normally ate at the table? The palace. Um, authorities and officials, the influential. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants, and David did not care. It's about fulfilling a commitment. It's about fulfilling a promise that he had made. Verse 11, and Ziba said to the king, your servant will do all my lord the king commands. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table just like one of the king's sons. Can you imagine like Mephibosheth hobbling in in crutches or a scooter or whatever? And he pulls up to that table and he's sitting at a table that only royalty could sit at. And can I just tell you this? This is just like for free. Those tables in those days had long tablecloths. They're big tables. And when he pulled up, the tablecloth covered his handicap, covered his feet. The same thing that Jesus Christ's blood does for us. When we're a daughter or son, of his, a child of his, when we pull up to his table, his blood covers our sin. Second principle about compassion is this, is compassion drives us to be aware of the needs of others and, and act. Compassion is this issue that not only drives us to, to keep our commitments, but it drives us to come to this place and just be aware of the needs of others and act. It's one thing to be aware of the needs of others. It's a total another thing to, to, to act. And so David made a vow. David made a commitment. He's going to do that. So he made this commitment. Listen, that's not compassion. Compassion is when he actually did it. Compassion isn't just promising to feel sorry for someone or promising to help someone or promising to say, I feel your pain or, or any of those other things. It's expressing kindness in more than words. It's action. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is without food, oh, I'm sorry, uh, James chapter 2, verse 15, if a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one who says to them, go in peace and stay warm and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith if it does not have works, is dead by itself. In other words, what James is trying to help us to understand, it's not something you just say, and it's not just something you, you just feel. Now listen, so as a kid, and this is, as a kid, of course my name's Charlie, in case you don't know, and so my name's Charlie, and as a kid, I always had, because Charlie Brown was like popular growing up, I had a Charlie Brown-themed bedroom. I had the Charlie Brown bedspread, you know, and the pillow and the, the Charlie Brown lunchbox, and kids made fun of me in school about that. And so, but anyway, so, so my theme of my bedroom until, you know, until I, until I grew up uh, was Charlie Brown. So I don't know if you know this, but I was given a lot, well, let me back up. The Peanuts cartoons, uh, Charles Schultz is who wrote that. Charles Schultz is a Christian. And many of Charles Schultz's 
cartoons were inspired by Scripture. And so I actually was given a book, like, like many years ago, of, of, of the peanut cartoons and the Scripture that go with it. And so when you look at this verse where James says, what good is it if someone says, be well fed and you don't do anything and I'll pray for you and you don't do anything to meet that need, that faith is not just something you say and faith is not just something that you feel. And so I, I thumbed through my, my Charles Schultz-like book and there's this cartoon and it's one of my favorites. It's one of the ones where when Snoopy was like out on the doghouse and you know you can tell he's like shivering and his water bowl is like, like, like full of water but it's like solid ice and then, and, then, then, uh, and then inside is Charlie and Linus, and they're having this conversation. And, you know, I bet you Snoopy is really hungry, and I bet you he's really cold. And, and he says, then, then all of a sudden one of the frames says, well, let's go do something about it. And so then Charlie and Linus walk outside, and as they walk by Snoopy, they say, be of good cheer. And they just keep walking. And so this is where Charles Schultz got that, com that, that cartoon from, from James chapter 2 about this issue, about, about this issue of compassion is more than just what we feel. And it's more than an emotion. It's more than what we say, but it's what we do. In other words, compassion takes action. It makes meals. It goes and visits. It expresses concern. It writes a check. It serves. Compassion is more than reacting to the needs we see. Compassion sometimes seeks them out. Isn't that what David's doing? David is seeking out the need. David is like, who has a need and how can I meet it? David could have said, you know what? If any of Saul's relatives are alive, let them come to me. If they come to me, then I discover there's one alive. If like, then, then, then I'll take care of them. But instead, he begins searching for this individual. He begins searching for this person. Compassion does more than, res than, than respond to obvious needs. It looks for opportunity to serve. Compassion is like aware of the needs of others. Compassion sees the needs of others when like others don't. And they just begin meeting that need. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5 says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure... They will keep you from being useless and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, this, as we become more and more spiritually mature, we should become more compassionate. If we're not careful, I'm just telling you, the older we get, the more cynical we become. The older we get, the more angry we become. Scripture says part of spiritual maturity and growing in Christ, the compassion grows in my life and compassion grows in your life. To begin developing a sensitivity to people in, around you and the need of people. The last thing is this, is that compassion drives us to give of our money and our time. The compassion drives us to give of our money and our time. When you look at Scripture, Scripture talks over and over about this issue of generosity and this issue of just giving to the local church and to the local body, because it's through the church that we meet needs. And it's this issue of learning to be generous with your time and with your income. 
Because it's through that, that that a church is able to minister to those in need. It's able to minister to those that, are, that, that society has kicked to the curb or no longer even knows that they're around. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 2 says this. It says, on the first day of the week, each of you is to set, aside, set something aside and save in keeping with how he is prospering so that no collections will need to be made when I come. Scripture talks about this issue of just giving, giving of our time and giving of our finances. Fact is, 1 John is written around this whole concept to help people understand this assurance of salvation and this assurance of ministering to one another. In 1 John 3, 17, the scripture says, if anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, How does God's love reside in him? Compassion is way more than just giving money. It's building relationships. You see that with David, right? David had the wherewithal. He had the ability to give him all kinds of money, but he brings Mephibosheth in. Compassion is way more than just writing a check. Compassion is a giving of time and it's giving of money. It's this issue of building of relationships. When you look at David, David just didn't send money. But he treats Mephibosheth like he was one of, his, one of his sons. And he brought him into the home and he gave him personal attendance. Compassion is this issue of just learning to reach out to people. Learning to welcome someone who is new into church, who is kind of nervous of stepping into church for the very first time. Building a relationship with someone. Meeting a need in somebody's life. But here's what's interesting about David. David invited Mephibosheth into his home. And you know what? I, I know many of you who have opened your home. And you have opened your home to foster kids, foreign exchange students, the elderly. I know of some of you that found out that there were some people in this, in this church who didn't have any family around them, and they were going to spend Thanksgiving or they are going to spend Christmas along, and you welcomed them into your home so that they would have a table to sit at with relationships. And Jesus is the one that said this, that the world will know that you're my disciple if you just love one another. And when you look at the ministry of Jesus, you realize that Jesus had compassion on people. But the significance of this story is that how David brought Mephibosheth in, pulled him up to the table, and the tablecloth covered his imperfections in the same way as a child of God that his blood covers our sin. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes?